0: Another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions and Guba Ladza, and the citation for this case is 2019 UKSC 31. And the good news is that this case is a really good example of how a seemingly small legal case involving one person can have a dramatic impact on the law as it stands, and even government policy. The bad news is that there are a fair few numbers we will get through by the end of this episode, which is never ideal for a podcast format, but I promise I will try and keep those to a minimum. On a fundamental level, the respondent in this case, Tamara Gubaladza, um, hopefully I'm pronouncing that at least reasonably well, um, anyway, Tamara Gubaladza is seeking state pension credit, but as a Latvian national, she would have to demonstrate three years continuous residence in the UK, and that is the point of the dispute. Of course there is a fair bit more to it than that, and so to really understand this case we need to delve into a bit of the recent history of the European Union. At the turn of the century the EU only had 15 member states, but plans were already afoot to expand this in a significant way. After all, the Soviet Union had only relatively recently collapsed, and geopolitically there were now a number of burgeoning democracies that were keen to join the West, so to speak, instead of once again falling under the influence of Russia in the east. The simple solution was for those countries to join the EU, and so in April 2003, the Treaty of Accession was signed, and just over a year later, 10 more countries joined the EU to bring the total number of member states up to 25. The existing members were generally happy about this from a political perspective, but there were genuine concerns about how the influx of so many new citizens would affect economies given the free movement of workers within the EU. As such, there was an annex to the treaty that allowed for existing member states, like the UK, to regulate access to their labour market from the biggest countries that were joining the Union, including Latvia. Over time, though, it was expected that these restrictions would become less onerous, and eventually the new member states would not be in any different position to the existing ones. To be more specific, existing member states had to regulate access for at least two years, but were allowed to continue applying the measures for a further three years if they so chose. At the end of those five years, a member state could continue to apply these restrictive measures for a potentially a further two years, but only if they notified the commission and there were either serious disturbances to the nation's labour market or the threat of serious disturbances. With that being the situation on an EU-wide front, the UK approached this question by setting up something called the worker registration scheme that required someone from a new member state to officially register before taking up any new employment in the UK. This did only last until a person had worked for 12 months, but one of the caveats was that if a person did not register, then that time period would not count towards their right to reside in the UK. Anyway, the UK took full advantage of the annex to the treaty, and so after the full five years, the government consulted the Independent Migration Advisory Committee about the next steps that they should take. Based on this advice, the government decided that there was an existing or potential disturbance to the UK labour market, and therefore informed the Commission that they would be continuing with the worker registration scheme for a further two years. Hopefully by this point you have a pretty good idea about the scheme, how long it ran for and how it operated. This means we can turn to the particular situation faced by Ms Gubaladza. She arrived in the UK in 2008 and then between September 2009 and November 2012, she worked for a number of employers which would in theory cover her for the three years continuous residence she would need to be entitled to state pension credit. Unfortunately, Gubaladze only got her Work and Registration Certificate in 2010, and so her application to the Department for Work and Pensions was rejected by the Secretary of State because the period before 2010 did not count towards continuous legal residence in line with the EU Citizens' Directive 2004-38. Gubaladze appealed against this rejection and was successful in the tribunal on two separate grounds. In the first place, an interpretation of residence was given such that her actual residence in the UK itself was completely fine and the continuous residence did not necessarily mean that she had to be exercising her rights under the directive. The second reason introduced something very interesting into the proceedings. It was held that the actual decision by the government to extend the worker registration scheme for a further two years after the original five-year period had elapsed was disproportionate and therefore unlawful. That meant in practical terms that Gubaladze did not need to register during that period that she worked, and so she did have three years continuous legal residence within the meaning of the legislation. Clearly though, the implications of such an important indictment of government policy were much wider ranging than this single case, and so it was not surprising that the Secretary of State appealed to the Court of Appeal. That appeal was only partially successful as while it was held that the correct definition of residence did imply legal residence and therefore compliance with UK legal requirements the Court of Appeal agreed that the decision to extend the worker registration scheme was indeed disproportionate and therefore Goobeladze's residence did not impinge on any lawful requirement this was far from the result the Secretary of State desired and so a further appeal was made to the Supreme Court which is where we pick the proceedings up. The starting point for the justices was whether the worker registration scheme was even open to being held as disproportionate by the courts. Those of you who have studied EU law in any detail will know that the concept of proportionality has a special place in union law, and the core argument from the Secretary of State was that because the decision to extend the scheme did not offend any pre-existing interests of Gubalazza, or others in similar position. In other words, the UK had the right to operate its own national measures, and so there wasn't anything to compare it to for the sake of proportionality. That was not exactly a strong argument, and so the Supreme Court was pretty quick to dismiss it. For a start, the earlier case of Zalewska and Department for Social Development from 2008 clearly contradicts that reasoning. The core question is, what are the protectable interests that are in play here? Should it simply be, as the Secretary of State argues, those interests that exist under national legislation? Or do we have to take a broader view and recognize that since the accession treaty came into force, people like gubeladze are now EU citizens? The courts since Zalewska have consistently taken the latter view, and the Supreme Court was once again in agreement. As a result, proportionality does come into play because the measures taken at national level must be proportional to the overarching right to free movement of workers under EU law. Of course, the conclusion that the scheme is open to questions of proportionality does not necessarily mean that the scheme was disproportionate, and so that was the next question that the justices had to address. In order to demonstrate that the two-year extension of the scheme was proportionate, For the sake of protection of the UK labour market, the Secretary of State relied entirely on the report from the Migration Advisory Committee that we mentioned earlier on in the episode. The problem with doing this is that the MAC was not actually asked to consider whether an extension of the worker registration scheme was proportionate in terms of EU law, and so understandably they did not express any view on that matter. Given that the Secretary of State did not submit any other evidence about factors that were taken into account as regards the proportionality of the decision, then this puts the government's argument in a very weak starting point. Meanwhile, the actual test for proportionality in EU law is based around a three-stage test, as confirmed in the UK by the decision of the Crown on the application of Lumsden and Legal Services Board from 2015. The first question is whether the measure in question is suitable and appropriate to achieve the objective at stake the objective here is the prevention of disturbances to the uk labor market and although the mac report showed that extending the scheme would only make a very small difference in this regard that difference was material enough to pass the first test of proportionality the second part looks at necessity and in particular whether the approach adopted by the government was the least restrictive one needed to meet the objective. Once again, the Supreme Court found in favour of the Secretary of State, as there was not really any alternative to the scheme available. The final part of the test examines proportionality in the normal sense of the word, i.e. was the measure disproportionate to the interests that were affected? On this front, it was Gubaladza who was successful, as the justices found that extending the worker registration scheme for a further two years in 2009 would only have a very small and speculative effect on the disturbances in the UK labour market. In contrast, the impact that the measure would have on not only nationals from the new member states, but also on employers based in the United Kingdom, would be substantially burdensome, and so the justices agreed with the assessment of the lower courts that the continuation of the worker registration scheme was disproportionate. The judgement could have simply ended there, but Lords Lloyd-Jones and Sales wanted to take some extra time to address the other issue that came up in this appeal. Namely, what is the definition of residence in relation to getting a state pension under Article 17 a of the 2004 Citizens Directive? You may remember from earlier on in the episode that the dispute here is whether there has to be legal residence in accordance with the rules and regulations of a member state, or whether it can simply be factual residence in the member state. The Supreme Court decided that factual residence was enough on its own because the overall purpose behind the Citizens' Rights Directive is to expand on the existing rights in relation to free movement instead of intending to impose further restrictions. As I said right at the start of this episode, I think that the overall importance of this case is definitely not to be underestimated. On a basic level, this is a win for Gubaladza, who was denied state pension credit because of bureaucracy, more than anything else. However, more fundamentally, this gets to hack the operation of EU law in the UK, and helps to tell us a little bit more about the ongoing Brexit debate as well. We can start off by being honest about the worker registration scheme itself. Immigration has long been a hot-button topic in the UK, with successive governments seeking to reduce the number of migrants to this country. This goes back a long way, but after the Accession Treaty there was particular concern in the tabloid press about an influx of Polish plumbers and electricians taking British jobs. Putting the weakness of that argument to one side, this does nevertheless speak to an inherent contradiction in Britain's membership of the Union. On the one hand you have the principles that the EU is built on, such as the free movement of workers, but on the other hand you have an immigration policy that is constantly pushing back against this in any way that it can. This is why we can conclude that the government was always going to extend the worker registration scheme no matter what the migration advisory committee had reported it was not proportional because it was never intended to be proportional in the first place it was intended as a political move to say criticism in the tabloids and that is why the secretary of state was unable to drum up any further evidence to support the actual decision that sort of policy approach does the job in the short term but comes up against a wall later on when facing the legal principles that underpin EU law. This is what we have seen happen in this case as the disproportionality of the measure is exposed as the hammer to crack a nut that it is. However, I also think that there is a more fundamental question that we need to be asking here, and that is whether the courts should be able to simply strike down an important part of the government's policy on immigration because it is disproportionate. This requires us to put politics to one side for a minute and ask the constitutional question about what the relationship should be between the branches of government. Everyone would agree that there has to be at least some oversight by the courts on the exercise of executive power, but it is not always clear how far that should extend. When dealing with areas of EU law, and proportionality in particular, this does seem to get pushed to the limit and it is easy to see why Brexiteers have legitimate concerns about the impact of EU law in the UK. Judicial review has always been relatively limited because the executive branches are very powerful compared to many other constitutions, while judges are unelected and are not there to question the policy of the day. This does not sit especially well with the concept of proportionality that serves to push the bar in the opposite direction to the natural tendency. For populists, the standard Brexiteer line is that they don't want unelected judges in Europe making decisions about the UK. The reality is that this decision was made by British judges in the top court of the land, but by using the principles derived from union law. Whether those principles will remain or simply disappear after exit day without a trace is a much more nuanced question that is difficult to answer and requires a deeper examination of how our legal culture has changed and been influenced by our membership for the past 46 years. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode, and thanks as ever to bensound.com, who provide the theme music. Remember, you can check me out online. I am at uklawweekly.com. Uh, you can find all of the latest episodes there, as well as past episodes as well. You can also check out my YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Marcus Cleaver, where we also have a repository of older episodes if you want to catch up. I'll be back with another episode next week, but for now, bye!